Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast run by WMDs, women making dollars. <laughs> Just kidding. We're not really. Donate to our Patreon. Thank you so much. Today we have Kellen, Zoe, and Belita. And we're going to be talking about the ongoing situation between the U.S., Iran, and Iraq. Um, On January 3rd of 2020, Donald Trump ordered the execution of Iranian military commander and government official uh, Qasem Soleimani, who the U.S. then assassinated via drone strike on Iraqi soil. Um, And obviously this has been dominating news coverage lately. um, And part of what we wanted to do with this episode is give some context for that assassination um, to kind of talk about the U.S.'s complicated histories with Iran and with Iraq, as well as those two nations complicated relationship with each other. So we figured we'd start with some history. My favorite thing to talk about, obviously. Um, And I think that to understand America's relationship with Iran, you have to go back definitely to 1953, which was when um, the U.S. helped orchestrate a coup in Iran. Um, Britain had had like a really long-standing monopoly on oil extraction, um, which was increasingly profitable um, through the 20th century. Um, And it had been putting its thumb on the scale in Iran's politics um, for a long time. And what I really wanted to do as I was thinking about this episode is to like get into the ins and outs of the British history in Iran. But I think that would be like an incredibly long story and people would probably fall asleep at the wheel if you're listening to this while we're driving. We do not want that. So that's a story for another time containing my impulse to word vomit history. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that we'll start in the 50s. Um, This guy named Mohammad Mossadegh. Um, became prime minister of Iran in 1951. And he was doing something that um, a variety of sort of anti-colonial movements tried to do, which is nationalize um, the uh, natural resources that the colonies, or the, sorry, the uh, metropoles were generally trying to extract from colonial possessions or quasi-colonial possessions. In the case of Iran, this of course was oil. Um, which up until that point had been essentially monopolized by a single company, Anglo-Iranian Oil, um, and it had maintained that monopoly with significant help, um, both economic and diplomatic pressure from the British government. As you can probably imagine, nationalization was hugely popular with Iranians who were, um, again, as you might imagine, really tired of seeing their nation's most valuable resource drained um, with the profits accumulating in foreign hands. Britain retaliated to these calls for nationalization by imposing a global embargo on Iranian oil. That led, sort of, again, cutting through some of the details, but that led to a political and economic situation in Iran, which was deteriorating until 1953, when the CIA and British officials executed a coup against Mossadegh and installed the Shah which was Iran's pre-existing monarch, but he had had little practical power. They installed him as an um, an absolutist leader. And the actual story of how the CIA accomplished that is just absolutely bonkers. Um, There's a bunch of false flag operations. The CIA is literally making deals with Iranian gangsters. CIA agents are posing as communists and inciting street violence, which then, of course, gets blamed on communists. 
uh, and then was used after the coup, surprise, as pretext to imprison and assassinate actual communists in Iran. Um, and there's just a bunch of other like stuff that is truly out of um, spy novels, but happened IRL. So again, I'm trying to like limit my history nerd outs, but the point is that the US and the UK work together to install a puppet government to ensure their continued access to Iranian oil by way of a corporate cabal. As after um, the uh, Shah was installed as an absolutist leader and the nationalization efforts were cut down, um, the nation's oil reserves shifted from being um, just in the hands of the Anglo-Iranian oil company to a consortium group of both American and European companies. Um, I think oil is going to be like a pretty common theme throughout this episode, but that is, in short, the story of the 1953 coup. Kellen, we love your history nerd outs. For the yeah, record. they're great. <laughs> I don't know why I'm holding back. <laughs> Unleash. <laughs> Um, but next, we want to talk about the 1979 Islamic Revolution, also known as the Iranian Revolution, and the hostage crisis. So I wanted to start by talking about the lead-up to that revolution. So starting in 1977, um, a lot of journalists and activists and other kind of, you know, intellectuals were began publishing a series of open letters criticizing the accumulation of power of the Shah. So that was going on pretty much starting that January. And then by October of that year, um, there was a 10-day poetry festival organized by Iranian writer, the Iranian Writers Association um, at the Goeth Institute in Tehran, which um, attracted thousands of participants for lectures criticizing the government. On October 23rd, uh, Mostaga Kholemi, who was the son of Ayatollah, uh, Kulimi died of an quote-unquote unknown cause, um, and his father had been living in exile since 1963 when he was arrested for leading protests against the Shah's modernization program, um, and Kulimi was seen as this, a major figure in opposition to the Shah. So it, on October 15th and 16th, there were protests of mainly Iranian students uh, at the White House in D.C. during the Shah's visit. And that led to, of course, tear gas and other police brutality against those protests. On December 31st, the current president of the U.S., Jimmy Carter, maybe you've heard of him, <laughs> toasted, <laughs> he toasted the Shah and described Iran as, quote unquote, an island of stability in one of the most troubled areas of the world. <laughs> so that was the beginning of things ramping up. And it, that continued into 1978. On January 6th, an Iranian newspaper published a front-page editorial disparage of Ayatollah Khomeini. Which so just was just Zoe, jump in yeah. real quick here. Yes. So Ayatollah Khomeini is the it, well, the Ayatollah sort of in general is a really important religious leader, um, a cleric, uh, a Shia Muslim cleric. Um, we'll get into. Some more stuff about them soon about yes. I, what. Spoiler alert: Ayatollahs become really important in Iran uh, yes. very quickly in um, the time that Zoe's talking about. But this one, um, Khomeini, not to be confused with the one that followed him, whose name was very similar, Khomeini, um, who is the current supreme leader of Iran, um, is in exile because of his opposition to the Shah, as Zoe said. Sorry, continue, in case people are not familiar with what 
who the Ayatollah is. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, so there was this front page editorial disparage of him, which was reportedly written by the rural court uh, under direction of the Shah. So then a few days later, on January 9th, um, at the main bazaar in Qom, um, which is where the largest seminaries in Iran are based, uh, there was a protest against that defamation. Um, and thousands of protesters attached symbols, attacked symbols of the monarchy, and the security forces killed at least five of those protesters. There were morning, cer- uh, morning ceremonies were held in cities all across Iran, and this kind of started this cycle of a lot of protests and riots, and then the protesters being killed, which then led to, of course, more protests and riots. We are familiar with that cycle. So that was going on throughout 1978. On August 27th, the prime minister resigned and his uh, successor implemented some reforms as an attempt to quell the protests. Uh, Spoiler, that did not work. So (laughs) (laughs) on September 7th, the Shah declared martial law and then on September, sorry, on September 7th. And then on September 8th, there was a large protest in Tehran where at least 100 protesters were killed. And that became known as Black Friday. So the prime minister once again resigned. So wait, that guy was in his office for like two weeks. Yeah. Got it. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, And then he was like, wait, this job's hard. I'm going (laughs) to leave to you guys. Um, And then the Shah broadcasted on national television a promise not to repeat past mistakes and to make amends saying, quote, I heard the voice of your revolution as Shah of Iran, as well as an Iranian citizen. I cannot but approve your revolution. Uh, End quote. Jimmy Carter then said in a press statement that, quote, we personally prefer the Shah remain a major role, but that is the decision for the Iranian people to make. End quote. Oh, my God. I, I don't even, like, know how to respond to that, but it I it, the first response that popped into my head was, like, okay, boomer, but Jimmy <laughs> Carter isn't a boomer, uh, uh, but it still has real, like, okay, boomer energy, I yeah. think. Um, so, Definitely. yeah, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for that, Jimmy. <laughs> Glad to know that you do think it is the Iranians' people, the Iranian people's choice, like, who their leader should be. Cool. Right, of course, and he exhibited that clearly, as we will <laughs> go on to learn. Uh, so that led to millions of Iranians protesting all over the country, demanding the removal of the Shah and the return of Khomeini. Uh, on December 29th, the Shah appointed another prime minister, <laughs> who was a longtime nationalist politician and a vocal critic of the Shah. Uh, Wait, which... the Shah appointed a guy who was like a critic of his. Yeah, because he was he was trying to be like, see. I mean, I wouldn't you <laughs> to hold on to your job? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, exactly. that, that that's interesting. I didn't know that. So they were really trying everything to <laughs> prevent the revolution, um, and, yeah. and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> so this brings us to 1979, the year of the revolution. Perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> Um, Khomeini was still living in Paris since he had been exiled um, during, well, in 1963 and throughout this unrest. And he then formed the Revolutionary Council, which was supposed to coordinate the transition of um, politicians. So on May 8th of that year, 
on International Women's Day, tens of thousands of Iranian women gathered in Tehran to protest the necessary wearing of the veil, uh, which is just to say that there were a lot of continued protests and riots going on at this time. Um, and I chose out that one, of course, because it involves women. We love it. Okay. <laughs> and then in May, on May 5th, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Cops was established by Khomeini. On August 3rd, the Iranians voted in nationwide elections for the Assembly of Experts, which is a clerical-dominated body empowered to finalize the draft constitution. Due to a lot of um, boycotts by leftists and nationalists and some Islamic factions, voter turnout fell far below for what it was at the March referendum. Uh, and then in October, the former Shah was allowed to enter the U.S. for medical treatment. Um, and Khomeini condemned the U.S. for allowing the deposed Shah entry into the country. So... Now, this brings us into the hostage crisis. Some of you may be familiar with it, having seen Argo starring uh, one of, who is that one? I was about ben to make Affleck? a joke. Ben Affleck, yes. <laughs> All I could remember was the, the jerk that used to be married to the two hot Jennifers. There you um, go. He's not, he's not worthy of me remembering his name. Anyway, yes, you may remember Ben Affleck single-handedly... Uh, ended the Iranian uh, hostage crisis, exactly. but, which is always going to tell us about now. Go ahead, Zoe. <laughs> uh, I feel like this is so much talking, so yes, please continue to jump in. Uh, so the hostage crisis. Uh, on November 4th, student protests took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and seized the, personal, the personnel as hostages. The leaders of Iran's provisional government resigned in protest, ceding uncontested authority to the new state to Khomeini and the Revolutionary Council. On November 7th, so just a few days later, Jimmy Carter sent a personal note to Iran to negotiate the release of hostages, which was, of course, refused. On November 14th, a week later, the U.S. froze all property and interests of Iran and the Central Bank of Iran. So... Yeah, big hostage situation right there. Holding capital hostage, holding people <laughs> hostage. Yes. Um, and by December, Iran had a new constitution, which had overwhelming approval from popular referendum. But a couple of days later, the UN passed a resolution calling for Iran to release the said hostages. Um, if I may uh, yes. interject really quickly right here. So Iran did end up releasing those hostages mm -hmm. um, an hour after Jimmy Carter's term ended mm -hmm. and Ronald Reagan's began. And they waited very specifically to do it until Jimmy Carter was no longer president <laughs> so that it couldn't have been done on his watch just to spite him because they fucking hated him so much. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so then in January of 1980, the first president of the Islamic Republic was elected, although within 18 months, he was impeached and fled the country. Uh, normal, <laughs> normal things were happening. Um, and then in March, the Iranians voted in parliamentary elections, which following that, the U.S. formally severs all diplomatic relations to Iran. Uh, and then in April, there was what is known as Operation Eagle Claw, 
Oh, which was an embassy hostage rescue mission, and that failed after the a sandstorm caused the crash of the U.S. helicopters, which led to death of eight U.S. soldiers. On April 28th, the Secretary of the State at the time, Cyrus Vance, announced his resignation, which he had submitted to President Carter four days before the rescue operation was launched. Then in July, Iranian authorities found out about a coup plot and they launched a new purge of the military. Shortly thereafter, the former Shah died in Cairo, Egypt. And on September 12th, Khomeini outlined preconditions for an agreement. Ten days later, Iraq invaded Iran, which set off an eight-year conflict that resulted in hundreds of thousands of casualties. And um, we're going to talk about that later as well. Yes. Um, And so it should be noted, as we're sort of going through, Zoe, thank you for outlining that timeline of the... Anytime. (laughs) Transition between um, the Shah's government and um, the Ayatollah's government in the Islamic Republic. Um, It should definitely be noted. And actually, in some ways, I kind of resent that we have to note this stuff, but I do feel like there's this sort of expectation. Maybe we at Season of the Bitch should push back against it, that like when we're talking about these kinds of regimes, we have to be like, okay, so the people didn't like the Shah. Um, There was like popular movement to install Ayatollah Khomeini as like the leader of the country. But then we have to be like, but we're not saying it's all good. Um, And it wasn't all good. It's, um, it was a theocratic government. Yeah, Um, the Ayatollah was bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Not I have... That doesn't mean the Shah was good. Right. The Ayatollah exactly. was also very bad. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yes. And it, I mean, there's just, there are different forms of oppression. I know, like, one of my good friends is um, an Iranian Jew, or his family was um, Jewish from Iranian, from, from Iran originally. Um, you know, he has a Farsi last name. Um, and they had to leave the country after um, the Islamic Revolution. So after the revolution, um, we'll talk about the war between Iran and Iraq later. And the United States is very much involved in that. Um, but in terms of sort of unilateral relationship with Iran, not a lot changes um, until the 2000s. So the first sort of big event um, in the, the you know new millennium is 9-11, After 9-11, there was a period in which it seemed like there might be an opportunity for the U.S. and Iran to, like, work together. And I did a little sort of dance after work together because I'm not saying it in a way that is supposed to imply any sort of constructive uh, cooperation. The reason that it seemed like there was an opportunity to find common ground is because suddenly both Iraq and the United States had a common enemy, which was Sunni extremists like Osama bin Laden. So to clarify, bin Laden was a Sunni Muslim from Saudi Arabia, which is controlled by a Sunni regal family. Iran's theocratic leaders, as we discussed earlier, are Shia Muslims. Also a side note, the Sunni versus Shia narrative that has become a shorthand in American media, I think, does definitely oversimplify relationships in the Middle East, and I regret the extent to which I'm kind of falling back on it here. Um, But there was a period in which it seemed like Iran might be useful for the United States in the Middle East, Um, but any potential for bonding over America's continued imperialism was quashed by the time George W. Bush referred to Iran as part of the, quote, axis of evil in his State of the Union address, and I believe 2003. 
um, raising it to the level of America's top three enemies um, besides North Korea and Iraq, which the United States would invade about two months later. And I think this is sort of the time when we might want to switch over and talk a little bit about the United States history with Iraq. Yeah, the Iran-Iraq war <laughs> um, was a war that was fought really by the United States. Like we funded both sides of this war. And it was really, that was really to accomplish two things, weaken Iran um, and fund the Nicaraguan death squads to fight the newly won Sandinista revolution. Yeah, throwback <laughs> to the Sandinista episode and the Reagan yes. episode. Double throwback. Double throwback. Um, if you haven't listened to the Reagan episode, which we put out recently, little refresher, the United States had an embargo in, on Iran, as we mentioned, could not legally sell weapons to the state. Congress had also moved to prevent Reagan from supporting the Contras, aka a genocidal right-wing militia in Nicaragua, where the leftist Sandinistas had just taken power. Um, and so in order to get untraceable money to send to the Contras, um, because that's how much Ronald Reagan hated communism, the United States funneled weapons to Iran through Israel and then sent those funds secretly to Nicaragua. At the same time, the United States was legally sending weapons to Saddam Hussein. Yes, that Saddam Hussein. He was using chemical weapons during the Iran-Iraq war, and we officially supported him back then. Remember this point when we get up to, say, 2003 in this story. So to really nail, nail in the um, fact that Iraq was and Saddam Hussein was seen as an ally of the U.S. When my parents came to the U.S., they came here on, uh, to claim a political asylum. They they contended that they faced discrimination in Iraq. You know, they're Assyrian, um, and Assyrians majority, if not all of them, are Christian. For years and years and years, years the U.S. government kept rejecting their claim to asylum because we were allies with Iraq, and because as far as the U.S. government was concerned. Um, Iraq did not treat its Christian minority badly. It wasn't until one of uh, the appeals uh, courts that my dad went uh, went to one day um, where he actually said, I've never claimed to be persecuted on the basis of our religion. I claim to be persecuted on the basis of my ethnicity. I'm a Syrian. And in Iraq, you can only be Arab or Kurdish. You can't be anything else. Um, and that was the only reason they were granted asylum. It was almost a decade later because we had such good relationships with the country that they didn't want to give anyone asylum from it. Um, well, Lita, what, when was this? Just out of curiosity. This was, they finally won their uh, asylum case in like the late 80s. Wow. Yeah. Oof. And they'd been here since the late 70s. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so anyway. So yeah, we funded both sides of this war. Uh, over the table and under the table, and kept it going for nearly a, dec a decade. Um, this decimated the Iraqi population. Of course, also the Iranian population suffered from this very, very badly. I Iran was also suffering um, sanctions during this time. Um, not only that, but it pitted family members against each other. So Kurds and Assyrians, for example, transcend these imagined borders mm. um, between Iraq and Iran. And you know, they live in their historic lands throughout both countries. And now we're forced to fight each other on opposite sides of an imperialist funded war. Mm. Um, so some populations would experience this really a lot more heavily. Um, when that finally ended, 
1990, we saw the invasion of Kuwait and the first Gulf War, the first Iraq War. Um, so after the Iran-Iraq War ended, and I have that in quotes because Iraq will continue to be the theater for U.S.'s proxy war with Iran, mm-hmm. um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, which historically, like, Kuwait is also not really a country. These are all, like, imagined, you know, whatever. So Iraq, Iraqis that live in the South are like, why is Kuwait a thing? It's just, it's part of Iraq. Like, it's so ridiculous that it's not, it's just been carved off into this its own thing. Um, so they considered the land arbitrarily separated. Uh, again, actual family members and whole tribes were separated by this imaginary land being thought. So Saddam Hussein fully believed that he would have, at the very least, neutrality from the U.S. for invading. Um, oh. But in, yeah, oops. Um, <laughs> it gave it, it, it instead gave the U.S. a reason to invade and occupy and split Iraq apart. So a little background. So in 1991. A no-fly zone was implemented in the north. Now we know it is the Kurdistan region of Iraq. But that line that cut the northern part of Iraq off from the rest of the Iraqi government was just called the no-fly zone. Um, so despite being territorially part of Iraq, it was a no-go zone for Saddam Hussein's government, generally speaking. I mean, there was still some movement happening back and forth. But overall, it was it was meant to be the sort of neutral zone that the U.S. had a presence in. Assyrians, whose indigenous villages are mostly in what is that area, northern Iraq, but who happen to be living in Baghdad or Basra or anywhere else in Iraq, sorry, I default to pronouncing it correctly. No, that's Um, good. You should keep doing so. (laughs) um, So they were not cut off from their family members, right? The same was true for Kurds and even some Arabs. Like if they lived in the south but were originally from the north, it was now very difficult to sort of Mm. move back and forth. Um, This no-fly zone stayed in place until the second Iraq war in 2003 when oh, the wow. country became whole again. Yeah, it was, it was, an, it was a no fly zone until that, until that time. And, um, by that time it, it had been about 13 years that it had been the sort of its own thing happening. Um, and it served a few different purposes. It gave the U S a permanent military presence and base in Iraq. It engendered good relationships with the uh, Kurdish political parties that formed a provincial government during that time in that area, with Assyrians all, uh, also incorporated into it as like ministers and representatives. And it created a buffer space between Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Iraq. So to this day, it still serves that purpose, and only that purpose, right? With the U.S. continues, uh, and the British did it first, the U.S. is doing it now, mm-hmm. um, continuing to use Kurdish dreams of aspira- uh, aspirations of separatisms and aspirations of independence as the carrot on the stick and maintain its present there. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time, nor will it be the last time, the Western imperialist powers that happen to be have played such game with Kurds and Assyrians, for that matter. Um, Kurds have been a very useful tool for Western imperialist design, and Assyrians and Yazidis are often caught up in these relationships um, and we more recently saw what plays out when the U.S. no longer feels a strong need to use these people for their own ends. Uh, we saw that in northern Syria when the U.S. suddenly pulled out and left the Kurds and Assyrians once again to their own devices to try and survive genocide and basically occupation by the Turks. Ooh, yeah, I mean, like, really, really well said. Um, I I guess, like, the so we've got, we've got the 1990s sort of covered into 2003, which is another really big turning point. Um, and that's when the United States formerly, or formally, rather, formally re-entered Iraq. Um, and I say formally because, as Walida demonstrated, um, 
we never really left. But after 9-11, the Bush administration quickly invaded Afghanistan in its efforts to root out Osama bin Laden, which, as many of you remember, went poorly. Um, Unsatisfied with but a single interminable ground war in Asia, folks like Donald Rumsfeld and Karl Rove and Dick Cheney started laying the groundwork for the invasion of Iraq. And as a side note, these guys were called neocons or neoconservatives. And um, as I was thinking about this, I was like, wow, there's a lot of like really terrible neos. Um, See also neoliberals, neo-Nazis. If somebody has a good example of a neo, I would love to hear it. Um, So far not seen a lot. Anyway, the neoconservative Bush administration started presenting um, like a whole bunch of reasons that the uh, invasion of Iraq should take place. For example, Iraq helped do 9-11. A lie. Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Wrong. Iraq was run by a dictator who used chemical weapons, and so it was America's job to help spread democracy. Wrong again. Extremely not our job. Um, Listeners who are old enough, it is crazy to me that we have listeners who are babies and might not remember this. Um, Hello, babies. Shout out to the babies. Um... (laughs) Listeners who are old enough might remember Colin Powell going in front of the UN with, like, a janky poster board and explaining how the CIA had proof that it's Saddam Hussein was buying enriched uranium from Niger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Saddam was... Yeah, I remember the word yellow cake. Yellow cake uranium yep. being a big thing. Um, nowadays, Kellen, yellow cake is Kellen, vanilla. If I... If I may, I remember Oliver North testifying to Congress about his role in Iran-Contra. Damn, Walida! Speaking of babies, you're all babies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, yeah. Well, so I was going to ask you guys, um, I, I have, like, pretty, like, I remember very well the Iraq... Um, the beginning of the Iraq war, it was in 2003, it was March, um, and I was in fifth grade visiting my grandparents on spring break, and, like, I will never forget, like, part of the reason I remember, my grandparents don't live there, they haven't lived in that house for a really long time, part of the reason I remember, like, what the layout of the house or, like, the living room is, is because of my memory of looking at the TV during, like, the beginning of the Iraq war, um, it was, like, the first time, I think, I had, like, really been conscious of seeing, like, bombs being dropped on a city, like, as it was actually happening. Um, I, like, remember the blackness of the sky and, like, the white and pink of the bombs going off. Um, and, like, my the adults around me were, like, really, really somber um, for the rest of that day. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Willie, I'm sure it was... I don't know. What was it like for you when that, when the war started? Which one? <laughs> 2003. Um, in 2003, I was living in Spain. I was oh, in wow. Barcelona. And um, I, there were global protests. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen anything like it in my life, but there were global protests that turned out, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people mm-hmm. um, to protest uh, an American invasion in Iraq in the lead up to it. I think we invaded in March or April, and these had started a few months before. Mm-hmm. And I attended the one in Barcelona, and I kind of stood off to the side. I remember, and I didn't really engage in it because I, on the one hand, knew what Saddam Hussein was, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I felt like I wasn't in a place 
to protest his removal. Mm. But I also didn't not want to protest because I knew the United States was not really the thing that was going to do it well. I was, I was very torn actually Mm. about it. Um, I did an interview shortly after that, a few years after that on, um, Dan Rather reports. Oh, wow. And yeah. And he had me on with a few other Iraqis, a Sunni, a Arab, Shiite Arab, and a Kurdish activist. And I was making the argument, this is, I think in 2005. So very quickly after it started, 2005 or 2006, um, that the United States shouldn't leave. And it was because at that point, violence had started against Assyrians. Like between, and I'm gonna talk a little bit a little bit about this later, but violence escalated, not just against all Iraqis, but there was very specific targeting of minorities. There was terrorism to try to get minorities out of Iraq. Um, and, and it worked, a lot of us left. And really the only, the Iraqi government was helpless in stopping it. And it was only really the American one that was gonna be able to do anything about it if it decided to. Mm. So I was put in a position of, of like, it would be very bad. Yeah, of course we have no business there, but it would be very bad for a lot of people unless we fix what we've broken mm-hmm. or at least try to. Yeah, It was really, really rough to be an Iraqi American during that time, especially as a member of like a, a minoritized people that have absolutely no voice and no power in the, in the area. Wow, yeah. Zoe, do you remember the beginning of the Iraq war? I do. Um, as Walida was saying uh, previously, like kind of all of the board, well, all borders are fake and, you know, specifically in the Middle East. Um, so my family is Lebanese slash Syrian, depending on like what year you're looking at. <laughs> um, but like the the Lebanon sector of that. So, um, I mean, I was sorry, but as the baby of the coven, I was pretty <laughs> young at the time. But so I don't necessarily remember like the politics Mm-hmm. of it um, I remember 9-11 really clearly and I remember then when the war started being like oh this is because of 9-11 mm-hmm. and I was like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> <laughs> like as like how old was I I don't know t- 11 I was just like this makes no sense like what are you talking about um but more so I remember like the reactions uh like having teachers you know read my last name and be like what is that and I would be like oh it's Lebanese and they would be like Oh, and it was a clear like drop in their face, like mm. you know, upset. Um, so I remember the reactions to it a lot, and yeah, and just kind of like asking my parents, being like, "What's going on? Why is there a war?" And like just not understanding any of the explanations. Like I was like, "None of this makes sense. Like I don't know why this is happening." Mm. Um, and then that continuing <laughs> literally for the rest of my lifetime. Well, I, that's like a that's a good, I think, transition back to like the explanation that the United States government was giving. Right. Um, you know, uh, there was all of all of the justifications that were given um, on the international stage at the UN sort of in the press rounds that um, members of the Bush administration were giving. Um, were not just later proven to be false, but were proven to be actually known to be false in the U.S. intelligence community at that time. So, yeah, not only was the intelligence that, not only was it 
an intelligence failure, which I think is like a term that gets parroted a lot. But it was it was um, the Bush administration running with um, what was known to be untrue information, um, not just receiving information, believing it to be true, and then finding out later that it was it was wrong. Um, so it. Was, it uh, I mean, obviously, the U.S. government engages in a lot of intentional deception, but this was on an incredibly wide scale um, on the like the sort of peak of the world stage um, and some of the most like brazen lies that I think the U.S. had been um, had been telling its people in the rest of the world like since like the Vietnam War, probably. Yeah, or since I Oliver mean, North, you know, well, leader remembers. <laughs> I do. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think like the double edged sword, right. Of what I, we were saying with like, you know, borders being fake is also that most people in the U S actually don't know the difference of different countries and regions in the middle East. So it's very easy for the U S government to lie about it because yeah. people just don't know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, there was a graphic floating around Twitter uh, recently that was, like, asking people to find Iran. Asked It was supposedly a, a graph of, like, asking, or a graphic of um, Americans asked to find Iran on a map. And I do think that I'm skeptical of some of those things because there were people who were, like, putting it in the Atlantic Ocean. There was a cluster of dots over, like... Um, Kansas. So I, I think a lot of people don't actually answer that like to the best of their abilities. But yeah. I, I, I do think you're I mean, you're absolutely right that like, there's a huge dearth of knowledge about like what's actually happening um, in other parts of the world, and especially in a part of the world that Americans have been so conditioned, white Americans, especially have been so conditioned to be suspicious of um, for so long. And um yeah, and and so the Bush administration got what it wanted. It got a war on Iraq, and so it, it, the war actually began in, in March 2003. Um, just two months later, in May 2003, we had George Bush giving that famous speech on an aircraft carrier with the giant Mission Accomplished banner behind him. Um, and it was December of that year, December 2003, that Saddam Hussein... Um, was found hiding in a bunker and uh, then taken into custody and, and eventually um, later on executed. But that was definitely not the end of uh, the war at all. No. Um, 2003 sort of represented an end to the stalemate with Iran. Um, although I say stalemate loosely because Iran has been essentially under U.S. sanctions since the revolution mm -hmm. um, in 1979 and opened up Iraq as the new theater where they would fight their proxy war. So a little more background on Iraq, because this is really the place that all of the Iran-American stuff is going to happen. Mm -hmm. In an effort to repeat the failed model of governance in Lebanon, um, sectarianism was built into the new Iraqi constitution, which was ultimately ratified, I think, in 2005. Um, fun fact, uh, so <laughs> all the different factions of Iraq were invited to sort of put, give their input in the constitution and approve it together. So they wanted, they wanted Sunni, Shiite, Kurdish, Assyrian input, like um, building the country together. And in 2003, um, the Assyrian political party, uh, the largest Assyrian political party that we have there, put together a conference of Assyrians and invited a lot of Assyrians that had fled 
from the diaspora back to the country to give their input. And my dad was one of the people asked to go back. And he went in October of 2003 to Baghdad to sort of help um, Assyrians, you know, discuss how they wanted the new, what they wanted out of the new constitution for themselves. Wow. And that's a whole other, that's a whole other story. Um, So the country itself um, was quickly breaking up into political factions backed up by their own militias. So in the power vacuum that Saddam Hussein left, you know, Shiites rallied around, like, for example, Muqtada al-Sadr, a Shiite cleric, Sunnis around the Islamic party, led by then al-Maliki, who became the prime minister, mm. um, Assyrians around their main, main political party, the Assyrian Democratic Movement, which is still has, still has members of, of parliament in Baghdad, um, and the Kurds around two, uh, at the time they, they had two major parties, now they have a sort of third resistance party to the two. Um, but mm. back then it was really just mainly two parties, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan Democratic Party, run uh, by the Talibanis and the Barzanis, respectively. Um, and I lived in Suleymaniyah in Iraq, which is in the eastern, northeastern part of Iraq, in the eastern part of Kurdistan region, near the Iranian border. And um, travel between like PUK and KDB territory still requires checkpoints and like visceral scrutiny because they do not like each other. Oh, wow. It's really funny. It's like the, there's just visceral deep hatred of, of each other. Um, anyway, so Iran entered this fight. You know, it was not a, it was really not about to let the newly forming Iraqi state be fully controlled by the U.S. So we get Shiite clerics and political leaders building militias funded by Iran. I mean, Iraqis to this day will attest to some of these militia, like members of the militias, not even speaking Arabic, but only Farsi. Mm-hmm. Um you have to remember, like, the Persian Empire extended over a whole, I mean, the whole of Iraq for a very long time. And so they share, like, a physical and cultural history with that region. Um, most most Iraqi Muslims are, in fact, Shiite Muslims, uh, ruled by a city minority by British design for the last century. Oh, um, and then yeah. Amer- American. Um, I, I was just going to jump in there, Walida. The, yeah. the thing about the British... Um, I think some of our listeners may be familiar with this same tactic in a different um, sort of a different part of the world. So the British did a, a thing where they liked to sort of simplify their the regions that they controlled down into like two sort of major factions and then pick the smaller one and enable them to mm-hmm. kind of rule over the larger one. Um, yep. And uh, this is in sort of this is a simplification of one of the things that happened in what is now Rwanda um, with the Hutus and the Tutsis and in the aftermath of um, decolonization there obviously the ethnic tensions which were um, actually not a not as significant as they would come to be after the British left when the British arrived and b were oversimplified actually by the British and the people were sort of um, forced into a bifurcated system as opposed to a sort of plural ethnic system that the British found when they arrived, um, had its inevitable, or not inevitable, but um, eventual consequences in uh, the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s. So yep, this that's, is a, that's exactly a, what they would do. Yeah, it's a familiar tactic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they did it in Iraq as well. And um, basically... Since the 2003 American invasion, um, you know, various factions are trying to take Iraq over. 
in this power vacuum that's left. Uh, we started seeing right-wing Islamic fundamentalism, something that hadn't been seen in Iraq for a very long time. Um, as an aside, uh, between 2005 and 2013, 53 Assyrian churches were destroyed, oh usually God. through explosions. So there was like a real effort to get um, to sort of cleanse the region, I guess, of any non-Muslim minority. Um, random terrorist groups were literally vying for control of the country. But the Kurdistan region in the north was mostly unaffected by this type of violence. They restricted pretty heavily and still did when I lived there in 2011, free Arab movement into the area. So kind of like through, they, they did a racism to stay safe. Um, <laughs> I met Arabs living in the KRG, some who became very good friends of mine, um, faced a lot of discrimination and harassment, like for being Arabs, they had trouble getting jobs, getting housing, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, um, you know, it was around 2005 and 2006, there was a national discussion on whether troops should withdraw. Um, Obama, Obama campaigned on it the following year. So yeah, we really have been in this country for like, as occupiers for like 20 mm. some, some odd years. Yeah. Um, so in 2014, this all comes to a head when ISIS, like, is officially a thing that has formed and and started its destructive reign of terror. Um, the U.S. fought ISIS, but so did Iran, right? Neither country had any interest in an ISIS win, nor did Iraqis, for that matter, obviously. Um, and, you know, we've all heard of ISIS. We've all heard of the horrible things that they did. I really don't want to rehash them here because it's honestly just very difficult for me to talk about. But... Um, you know, I, I have a point of view of ISIS from the from from the lens and the context of a minority population, a minority non-Muslim population, um, who caught like perhaps not the most that that was the Yazidis, although maybe even the Mandians, and I don't even want to go into like what happened to them. They're virtually gone from Iraq. They don't exist there anymore. Um, the Yazidis have have the misfortune of not being considered Abrahamic, so they were like an open, defenseless target for ISIS. Um, who have a, they have a different like they had a different standing for ISIS because they didn't they were not like you know Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, the one of the Abrahamic religions, and they're pacifists by religion, so they literally had no defense for ISIS. Like they don't fight, um, but from the point of view of, of the minorities there. The Iraqi government was completely helpless, helpless in protecting us. They did nothing. They couldn't fight them. The Iranian militias were fighting them, but then would just like get rid of them and stay and not leave in, in the areas where we lived and where the Yazidis live. And Kurdish militias, the Peshmerga, have also been credited with fighting ISIS in Iraq. And they did fight ISIS in Iraq. Um, and uh, I know this episode is about Iran, but all of this, all of their fighting has so far been in Iraq. Like mm. everything that has happened right now, other than the hostage situation, <laughs> has taken place in Iraq. So we can't really have a conversation about one without the other, right? Yeah. So yeah. ISIS's entrance onto the scene exacerbated massacre and mass internal displacement and exodus of Iraq's indigenous minorities. And no one fighting ISIS actually cared about that. So the Peshmerga in particular... Um, used ISIS to their own ends. They actually, so Peshmerga was meant to operate within the Kurdistan regional government borders. It pushed, uh, because Baghdad had such a weak central government and the country was factionalized and falling apart, Not it was sort of a failed state. They managed to be organized enough to sort of push outside of their own borders and start trying to take over Assyrian um, lands that were outside of the Kurdistan region uh, territory. 
what was supposed to be their unofficial border. So they were occupying an area called the Nineveh Plain, which is just outside of Mosul. It is it is a region in Iraq that is majority minority inhabited, which is a weird thing to say, but it is majority Assyrians, Yazidis, Shabak, um, which is another group of people that live in Iraq, um, Armenians, some Kurds, some Arabs, very few. It really is like, I mean, it's the Nineveh Plain. It's the it's Nineveh. It's like the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. Like. <laughs> They've been there for thousands and thousands of years. So the Peshmerga sort of moved into that area. Um, and in 2014, they went to the Assyrian villages and they disarmed all the Assyrians. They basically put up these notices. And a, a group I used to organize with actually did some investigative stuff with this. And we have like interviews and all this stuff with people who survived it. But what they did was they disarmed the Assyrians by force. They said, you have to give up your weapons. If ISIS comes, we will protect you. Um, a month or so after that happened in the middle of the night, ISIS was like on its way basically to the Nineveh plain where all these Assyrians and Yazidis were living. And the Peshmerga got in their trucks and left. They left. They, they um, disarmed us and fled in the middle of the night. Um, and Assyrians knew this was happening. So uh, fortunately, a lot of Assyrians managed to escape. They literally went neighbor, neighbor to neighbor, house by house. Like they're coming, they're hum coming. The Peshmerga have left. Everybody run. Um, and the Yazidis were not so lucky. I, like the Yazidis suffered a fate that like has completely decimated them in, in the country. Um, again, I don't want to go into that because it's also very difficult to talk about. But like, while all sides were fighting ISIS during this time, um, the way the most vulnerable populations experienced ISIS was, was either as a useful tool against them or victims that didn't matter. And I just wanted to say, like, the reason the Peshmerga left and let ISIS in, it was was be so that we would flee and empty the lands. And once we did that, the Peshmerga moved back in fight ISIS off and then occupied all the territory and then stopped the Assyrians from coming back to their own homes. So it was, it was a way of emptying the land to change the demographic. Um, they sort of let ISIS do the dirty work for them. And it, to this day, they're, they're occupying it. Yeah. So all of this gives the United States as well, more cover to become re-entrenched in Iraq. And at this point, um, ISIS has been largely defeated, and as of literally this month, the Iraqi government has officially called on American troops to withdraw. And all of that, I think, brings us to the present. And um, as Alita said, it's impossible to talk about what's going on between the United States and Iran without talking about Iraq. Um, and that is certainly true for the assassination of um, Qasem Soleimani. So the actual assassination that sort of kicked off this latest round of um, bluster, I guess, with Iran took place on January 3rd, which was when an American drone strike took out Soleimani's convoy as he was leaving Baghdad International Airport. Also killed with him were several Iraqis, including the head of Iraq's popular mobilization forces. So um, just to be clear, this is a drone strike on a sovereign nation, an ally technically of the United States. Um, an assassination of a high-ranking government official as he's leaving a commercial airport in the capital city, which also kills a military commander of the allied nation um, that the strike takes place upon. Um, so this would I kind of be like if Spain bombed a car as it was leaving LaGuardia Airport and like killed 
France's home secretary and America's secretary of the Navy and like three other like American Navy men. It's just it's like it's mind blowing the degree to which it it totally upends um, what we would consider international norms if it were uh, happening on the soil of a nation that is Western or white, essentially. Um, And the official justification that has been given for this assassination is that Iran was planning attacks on four American embassies. Um, It's worth noting that Trump authorized this killing in the aftermath of a mob attack on a U.S. embassy in Baghdad. The crowd that, quote unquote, attacked the embassy broke windows. They, like, set fire to the lobby. They looted the building. Um, No Americans were hurt. And they quickly, like, regained control of the situation. So some of the people behind the attack and... Um, it's a weird word to use, I think, because a crowd, like, storming a building and spray painting it and, like, stealing stuff couldn't, shouldn't be called an attack if we can also call, like, a drone strike that takes out dozens of civilians an attack, which is the yeah. same way, you know, that we use the word when we're talking about the Middle, Middle East. But anyway, some of the people behind the incident um, were linked to a Shia militia. Iran's Quds forces, which Soleimani controlled... Um, have given support to Iraq Shia militias, as Walida talked about earlier. Um, And so Trump sort of followed this tenuous line um, and responded by taking out Soleimani and is now complaining, or sorry, claiming (laughs) that um, four other American embassies were under, quote, imminent threat from Iran. Um, And it, it is also worth noting, I think, that the situation may develop between the time this episode is recorded and when it's released. Um, So, you know, forgive us for missing anything that happens in the intervening time. We are recording on Sunday, January 12th. Um, And so today, Sunday, the Defense Secretary Mark Esper made some cable news rounds and admitted on one of the shows that he has actually not seen the intelligence that was supposed to show Iran's plans to attack um, embassies. And yeah, (laughs) interesting. Weird. (laughs) But he believes that it exists. Um, Sure. If that makes you feel any better. Uh, and meanwhile, the Iraqi government has issued a statement asking um, the United States to leave. Um, Mike Pompeo uh, has come out being like, no, I don't think we're going to do that. Um, this is literally an occupation that is like yes. the only thing that it can be called. We are yes. certainly not there at the behest of Iraq um, no. to the extent that that was the case before. Um and uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we stand now. So, in the last few minutes, um, I thought maybe we could talk about where we go from here. So, if you think about it, every Iraqi under the age of thirty has only known war and occupation um, and terrorism in their country. Ima- like, imagine that, right? Imagine being born in 1990 and still being alive. Like, that's That's been your life. I saw an Iraqi protest sign held up by a young man that said, U.S. wants Iran out. Iran wants the U.S. out. Sorry, are Iraqis in your way? How about we leave? (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. Why don't we get out of your way? Yeah. Um, This kind of sums up um, what a lot of protests there are about. I mean, overall, they just want to have normal lives free of war and just live. I think it's very difficult for me to say that as someone who is a Syrian because I'm afraid of what happens if there's no U.S. presence presence in Iraq. Not that it has helped, 
Yeah. It hasn't helped. In fact, it's made things a lot worse. Um, but it is still scary to sort of have it be unknown. Like if they leave, will Iran also leave? Mm. I don't know. Like what if Iran takes over? And like that also would really be very, very bad. Um, so I, I think I think the U.S. should leave anyway. I think we should get out of the country. Um, I think if we do that, then it gives space for Iraqis to now focus just on getting Iranians out of their country. Um, or I should say Iran out, out of their country, not Iranians. Um and there's no really other way for this to end, right? Either Iran has to go or the U.S. has to go first um, or maybe at the same time. I have no idea. But it's either that or Iraq just ceases to be anything more than a war zone for two countries that just yeah. want to keep fighting each other. That's like there's just no other way for this to really end. Um, out of all of the... Uh, this is this is, by the way, another reason that I can that I support Bernie Sanders is because of his stance on the Iraq war and how he is really, really vigilant about U.S. troops getting out of there. And no other candidate is talking like that. I mean, Trump supposedly was going to be the guy that yeah. I mean, he ran as an anti-war candidate, yeah. too. Right. Yeah. But yeah. of course, he never really was one. He never really was one. No. Um, um but I like it is with fear and hope that I say, please, let's get the United States out of there and also Iran out of there and maybe give people a chance to build their country the way they want it. Mm. I have no idea if it'll end up well. It might end up terribly. I don't know. But at least it will be theirs. You know, at least it'll, it'll be long. It'll be long to them mm. and it will be their decision on what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also want to say on like a maybe smaller, more personal level of where to go next to like check on your friends. Uh, I've seen a lot of people that like post lukewarm takes being like, I don't know what to say about Iran or like the crisis in the Middle East, but and like say something. You don't have to do that. You do not. No one is making you post. You don't have to. <laughs> Um, maybe a much like more effective use of your time in that way is to check on your Middle Eastern friends. Um, I subtweeted about this last week because I was in the Middle East and feeling very, uh, shitty that no one I saw posting about all of this was like, Hey, I know you're there right now. Like, how are you? <laughs> How's that going? Um, and then after I did that, a few people did message me things and it literally made me cry because even though I had basically asked people to do that, it still, um, you know, felt really nice. So my, my advice, not, I mean, of course, well, with what Walita was saying politically, but I think if you're just like, what's something I can do, I just want to make things feel better right now, aside from, you know, attend protests and, do all of that is like message your friends and like tell them that you hope they're doing okay and that you're on their side and like you know that it's hard um so yeah that's my advice that's, that's great, great advice. yeah um i love both of you guys i appreciate <laughs> you both being on here to talk with me about something that is intensely personal for you in a way that it um could never be for me and I hope you guys are doing okay. Um, I think on another note, um, uh, Zoe, you mentioned like 
going to protests, um, thinking sort of strategically yes. about like an anti-war um, position that like activists and organizers can take in the United States. Um, I've been reading some interesting stuff, a lot of it on Twitter about the sort of retrospectives on um, anti-war movements in the United States over the last like 50 years. And the fact that um, especially in like the last 20 years, they've mostly been failures. Um, as Walida mentioned, there were massive protests against um, the U.S. invasion of, of Iraq abroad, but also um, at home in the United States. And they were not successful, obviously, in um, preventing an invasion or preventing an occupation that's been going on for you know, as we've talked about literally almost two decades now. Um, and I think one of the reasons, and this is not an original insight of mine, is that, um, you know, walking through streets, even in, in massive numbers, is not necessarily going to be effective at anything but blowing off steam and making people feel like they've, they've, they've done something. Um, and if an anti-war movement doesn't target the gears of war um if you're just yelling but um you're not even yelling at raytheon you're just sort of yelling into the ether um then i don't know that we're gonna accomplish much and so you know as we're thinking about if things you know as things are developing like if it looks like we're you know looking like we're gonna be occupying having a, a really significant occupying force in Iraq for a long time. And, and that is the kind of thing that, that you as an activist or an organizer want to try to end, like thinking, being strategic about what we target, not allowing sort of lukewarm liberals to co-opt anti-war movements and make them about signs and hashtags and chants and, and not about targeting capital, um, targeting war profiteers, targeting, um, you know, the corporations that are in it for oil, all of that kind of stuff, like, it's, it's, you know, it's not going to work. Um, so I think that's another thing that, you know, as we're lending our support, our voices, our bodies um, to a kind of anti-war movement um, that we need to be really cognizant of and watchful for. Yeah, I think that's where a strong labor movement comes in. Hell actually. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also hopefully having a an actual anti-war pre uh, president, but yeah, um, that yeah. means it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anybody, any last sort of thoughts and stuff before we close out? I generally just want people to think about um, foreign policy, especially when it comes to stuff in the Middle East that it is very complicated and nuanced and people from the region have complicated feelings around it. Um, no, you know, no matter their analysis, like I'm a leftist, I'm a socialist, I have a very particular material analysis about war, but when something affects you personally and you, you sort of see the ins and outs of it, it can, it can complicate things. Um, and I just want to remind people that like, it's okay to not fully understand something or fully know what, what, side to fully be on or what to believe or what not to believe um that it's really important to listen to like people that are from there and uh, uh, always concede that like it's it's always more complicated and nuanced than we think it is and nothing is really starkly black and white um 
And because Americans are so, especially especially Americans, are so bereft of knowledge about most of the world, it's particularly particularly important for us to keep that in mind as we like try to understand how to how to like approach things like the Hong Kong protests or Iran uh, U.S. relations or Venezuela or just things like that. They're all, they're always uh, complicated, and it's really important that we listen to the people that are directly affected by it first and foremost. Yeah. I think also going off of that, um, something I've been thinking about, um, in general with a lot of the reactions to what's happening currently being like, Oh no, does this mean that there's going to be violence on American soil? Um, and this tendency for like kind of Anglo, uh, Americans or Westerners to post takes, without like considering the opinion of those who are being affected um is like people the people in these countries uh the people in iraq who as walid has said for the past 30 years have only known violence and terrorism have the same you know mental and emotional capacity (laughs) that people in the u.s have that people everywhere have and i think it's kind of easy to fall into the trap of like accepting us news and accepting that like no people there are just so used to it like they don't mind it's only bad if it happens to us is Mm -hmm. bullshit and as leftists we should know that but it seems like not everyone does um so yeah really what i want to say is like to remember that when you're thinking about these things or posting about these things or talking to relatives about these things is that People everywhere have the same, (laughs) humans everywhere feel and think the same way, like you're not having different thoughts, if that makes sense. People are the same everywhere. Exactly. People have always been the same. Yeah. (laughs) Well said, you guys. Well, I think that that's a good place to to end it. That was my last thought. I just, Yeah. um, yeah, I just feel like, a lot of folks in the U.S., especially, like, white Anglo folks, seem to think that they somehow know better, even when they're leftists, like, saying that. It's like, but you still think that your take is more important for some reason? And uh, it's not. Yeah. Also, nobody's getting drafted. That's... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, like, those are the first thoughts, like, are we going to be drafted? Are we going to be bombed? And it's like, that's no. not what it's about. That's yeah. never what it's been about. And also the answer is no. Like, we're not. Yeah. You're no. safe. Right. Like, you're safe, literally. Like, I mean, not everybody listening to this is safe. I, we may have people who are, you know, actually enlistees or, or people who live in the Middle East. Um, but as a general rule, like, stuff is not happening on American soil. Like, the people who are going to bear the brunt of this are are Iraqis um, and Iranians. Um mm. Right. And those people have the same fears and anxieties about it. Yeah. Um, we didn't even we didn't even yeah. like touch on the sanctions that yeah. Iran <laughs> that is that are going to be. I mean, that's that's a whole episode because what sanctions do sanctions yeah. are a form of war. Sanctions yeah. are war. It just yes. they're just a war against a population of civilians. That's yeah. what sanctions are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a literal it's a it's a war on, on the working class of Iran. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and they've been suffering for you know, as we've said, decades, um, under, under a sanctions regime. So yeah, yeah, no, our, our, our solidarity 
should always be um, with them. I, there's a meme that's been floating around lately. Um, that, you know, you have more in common um, with the working class of Iran than you do with uh, American billionaires. Um, and I think it's that's absolutely true. Yeah, important yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, that's what the billionaires believe. The billionaires believe they have more in common with each other. Yeah. The American billionaires and the French billionaires and the English billionaires. And the yeah. <laughs> whatever. Uh, Saudi billionaires definitely believe they have more in common with each other than they do with their uh, other citizens of their country. Yeah. And that's that's why the same people are selling, you know, selling arms to all sides of, of really any given conflict. Um, and they don't. Don't give two shits about you. So, nope. Anyway, solidarity is the solidarity. Guess, the takeaway here. Yeah, always solidarity with the working classes of the world. Um, Yay! I think that's a good place. Maybe a good place to end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, solidarity forever. Um, yeah. Well, again, thank you guys so much for discussing this with me. Um, everybody listening, thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Um, I hope. You know, you learned some stuff uh, today. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. If you have thoughts, feelings, you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, our, we have a Patreon. Um, lots of good stuff on there. Um, this is a sort of breaking news type episode that we are releasing to the main feed, but we have more of that. We have a really good episode on Brexit that I think is, or <laughs> not Brexit, the British <laughs> elections that just happened, but also kind of Brexit, um, yeah. that I think is still incredibly relevant that we put out a few weeks ago. That's up on Patreon. Um, more of that kind of stuff will keep rolling out. Um, so throw us a little money there and you'll get even more Season of the Bitch content. Um Giving us reviews on iTunes helps other people find this podcast. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends. All that good stuff. Um, so with yeah. that being said, I, I think we can wrap it up. Love you guys. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.